Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with one of his old hitting coaches who happens to be a first ballot Hall of Famer, Paul Molitor. To right center field, Myers and Nunley chase it. The ball drops! Molitor has his 3,000th hit and he's chugging for now, here's, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. Uh, today, we've got my old hitting coach, who was a pretty good hitter. We got Paul Molitor. Uh, Paulie, thanks for coming on. Long time no talk. How you been? It has been a while, Booney. Uh, I don't think we have very good memories of our year together there in Seattle in 2004. <laughs> but... Uh, a lot of other good ones along the way, but I'm doing good, man. It's been a strange year. Everybody knows, everybody's saying it, but uh, just trying to keep the right attitude and uh, looking forward to turning that calendar over. Calendar over in about a week. You're not kidding. You're not kidding. Getting through all the Christmas stuff uh, that, that'll kind of be fun. Uh, although sometimes too many kids is too many kids. Um, I want to start <laughs> this off. Let's go back. Let's go back to the beginning for Paul. It's you're a 28th round pick at a high school, and I believe you were a pitcher. Am, am I mistaken with that, or is that accurate? Uh, you know, I uh, I was a pitcher, infielder, like a lot of guys, and you know, I, I had been rumored to uh, some teams were interested in me as a pitcher and some as a hitter, and I actually got drafted by the Cardinals, and um, they were they wanted me to sign and they wanted me to, to to stick with the offensive side of the game. So I don't think the pitching was going to take me very far. All right, so you go from 28th round, you go to the University of Minnesota. You end up being a first-round yeah. pick, I think I think third overall, and kind of the rest is history. You go on from there. Um, yeah. You know, for me personally, I, I was a, a draft pick similar to you at a, at a high school, a lower-round pick, and, and I begrudgingly at 18 went to college. And I, I don't know. I, I look at it I, I, because I see a lot of these kids today, and you see a lot of really good talented high school kids but and right. you've seen it firsthand through through the organizations and and through working on the other side you know once your playing days yeah. were over i don't know that i see too many kids not only physically but from a a, a mental standpoint at 18 that are ready, ready for professional baseball and, and go to let's say a cal league a high a ball what do you think sure. about that well I, I think for the most part you're right um, you know, people always say, what would you do if you're a high school kid and as far as getting drafted in today's game? And, you know, for me, if you know, with the way the sliding is, if you're high enough, you're going to be compensated and you can cover college if baseball doesn't work out. But I still think, uh, you know, for a lot of kids to take the college route is, is just so beneficial. You know, you're playing really good competition. College life is great. You know, you have a chance to develop your game and then hopefully come out to draft a few, few years later. But, you know, it's worked different ways for different people. Um, and, you know, now today with the way they're turning the minor league system upside down, I, I, I just don't know that if that's going to affect how clubs go about their draft, if they're going to be looking for the older kids, not wanting to spend all those years developing like they've done for so many decades. 
Yeah, and and I think you're right. There are the exceptions. There are that 18 year old that we see and go, all right, that kid's just kind of beyond the pale. And and usually you're right. They're slotted yeah. in the first or second round. And and today, with the economics the way they are, you'd be crazy, you know, not to take the two million and the college and get a pretty good start in life, and then and take your shot at professional baseball. So, Paul, we go yeah, back. My, you, my, you, last, my last point on that was out. You know, when I was in development for a long time, you know, I'd see these kids that were a year or two out of high school. And you just really had to remind yourself that, hey, don't don't get overly critical. This guy would be a sophomore in college if he would have went the college route. So, you know, it's a different if it's a definitely a different schedule for those high school kids who need to come along through your system. Okay, so you sign, you play in three cities, and I want to I want to preface it with uh, I know Paul pretty good for for you listening out there in the Boone podcast uh, but this man was beloved by all three cities obviously Milwaukee was was your longest reign then you went to Toronto yeah. and, yeah. and uh finish up back at home in in Minnesota but uh sure are you are you that cool of a guy <laughs> I mean everywhere I go nobody oh. nobody has a negative they all loved Paulie in each and every one of your cities. I mean I was a kid when you first well, started watching you with Harvey's right? Wallbangers and yeah, uh, yeah. I remember you know, that well, swing. You, well you were around the game a lot, you know. I played against your dad quite a bit actually. Uh including the 82 playoffs, but um you know I I, I think if you play well, they're going to like you. That's kind of how it works. And, you know, I had a chance to spend 15 years in Milwaukee, which is a long time. Um, we never had a chance to win there. We did get to one World Series and got beat. But, um, you know, I just kind of thought that, you know, you get up there 10, 12, 13 years, you think you're going to be one of those few players that get to play for the same franchise your entire career. You know, you got Robin Young and George Brett and Kirby Puckett and Don Mattingly and, Ryan Sandberg, you know, whatever. You just think I might be one of those guys, and it just didn't work out. So I love my time in Milwaukee, great baseball town. And when it came time to make a decision, moved on to Toronto. You know, Toronto is baseball crazy. Uh, Won a World Series. Won a World Series. Yeah, yeah. That it, It made the move definitely, you know, worthwhile for me to make that change and go for the uncomfortableness of a spring training with a new team, and then we went on to win, which for the Blue Jays, actually, were, they were defending their title from the year before. So that was a great run. And, you know, I was one of the few players up there, Booney, that, that lived in Toronto year-round. I, you know, it just worked out logistically for me to stay there. And for some reason, I think that bought me some brownie points with the fans. And then, you know, I'm, I'm approaching 40 years old, and lo and behold, I get a chance to come back to where I grew up and play for the team that I followed as a kid and finish up my career in Minnesota. Um Quickly on that, Tom Kelly, I, I always liked him across the field. It was great to play for him. And I, I was really looking forward to playing with Kirby. Uh, unfortunately, that spring training when I went to the Twins was the year when he, when he was stricken with the glaucoma. So we never got a chance, but uh, still really enjoyed my last three years putting on the Twins uniform to finish up my career. Yeah, and that's interesting. I, I mean, it came full circle. You start off at the University of Minnesota and you come back to, to – have your final yeah. playing days in Minnesota. And I was checking you out, Paul. I, I, I mean, I know a lot about you. I know how great of a hitter. I, I got to play against you a little bit. At the beginning of my career was kind of the end of yours. But I was looking and I'm thinking, all right, 39 years old. Let's see how he did. You got 225 hits. <laughs> and I think you might have turned 40 that year. And, yeah. and people, it, it's I, I'm looking at it. And, and I think at your final year, 
Correct me if I'm wrong. I think he hit 281, and I'm thinking, why did he quit? Yeah. He's 40, 41. <laughs> he's still hitting 281. There's not too many guys in the history of the game. I don't know if there's any that have ever done that. But uh, well, you know, when explain I came back to, Minnesota, to me a little bit. That's that's yeah, clean living, Paulie. <laughs> the the year I came back here, someone asked me in spring training about getting the 3,000 hits because I think I needed like 211. And I said, well, if I play two more years, I think I can get there. And then that year I had 225 hits and I was able to get there in September. So, you know, you, when the year you're, you know, you play till you're 40, you're not sure what's going to happen. But, but thankfully, I think I played in like almost every game. I might have missed one that whole year. And, you know, we were fairly competitive con, con, considering we had lost Puckett in spring training. And, you know, I think we hung around 500, which was, which was decent for that team trying to turn it around. But yeah, you know, when I, when I, hit 280 my last year you know what I don't know about you Booney but my measuring stick was there was a lot more days that I that I just wasn't looking forward to going to work and you know when it becomes not enjoyable I was lucky enough to play 21 years into my until I was 42 I did have some interest from a couple of clubs to stick around for one more year but um, you know you, you just kind of know when the time's right in your heart and I, and I want to get to, because today's game, and it, it's a new game from when you played, certainly from when I played. Um, yeah. There's different measure, there, There's different bars that they're setting. And, and one that, that kind of, I'm not going to say pisses me off, but, but I see people not valuing the average yeah. that much anymore. It's like kind of, I, I was talking to Albert Pujols a few weeks ago, and they're not valuing the RBI. Well, in our day, that was your measuring stick, and you were a 306 career hitter. Now, I was lucky enough. I played a long time, and I hit 300 a few times, and, and I see the guys like yourself, like Edgar I had on a, uh, a week or so ago. 300 career. Uh, to the guys that are on the field, your peers, your teammates, we appreciate that because we know just how hard that is. You did it for an entire career. How much – how much pride did you take in that? And, and, uh, cause certainly, I, you know, Booney over here, you he know, knows, he knows what that means, Yeah, you, but how much pride you, did you, you take? Sure do, man. I, you know what it's like to grind out a year and try to, you know, like you said, with the RBIs and the run production and keeping your average up. And today, you know, first of all, I got to say, Hey, Edgar was one of my favorite guys ever to watch. I used to sit out on a bench and watch him take BP every time we play the Mariners. I mean, I just, marveled at what he could do but um so glad he got in probably had to wait too long but i'm glad he's in cooperstown where he belongs but um you know the average now it's, it's more thrown into the combination of numbers you throw it in with your walks and and then you get your on base and then you combine that with your slugging and then you now you got another number and you know there's to me there's still value because you want guys yeah getting on base i get it but you know you want guys that you think can get a hit and have a better chance to get a hit when you need to get a hit you know guys hit it over the fence we we know more more now than ever and but yeah i I still value some of those old school things man those two on rbis that they're they can change a lot of ball games so i don't know you know my last comment on this whole analytic thing is you know i just got done managing a couple years ago and i delved into it and i saw a lot of the value um, but I think, you know, we got to be careful. And for one, it's made the game not as aesthetically pleasurable to watch. Um, there's just so many non-action pitches. 
And uh, secondly, I still think, you, you know, I like ball players. I like guys that can do a lot of things on the field. You know, their athleticism, run the bases, play defense, get you two out knock. So, I don't know. I think we'll probably drift back to where we kind of combine the old school and the new school, but we've kind of forged ahead pretty quickly with the whole analytics game. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I would be – I think it would be uh, naive to to completely discount the the data and the and the capabilities that we have nowadays. I, I think as a player no that, that that retired twelve years ago, I'm, I'm kind of jealous of of all the information that the the players have at their fingertips now. Uh, but that being said, I think I think you're right. I, I think there's a there's kind of a coming together of a old fashioned gut feeling and, and take the analytics for what they are. And, and there's got to be a perfect storm to that. I think, I think yeah. baseball, it, I think the analytic question was brought up in the postseason with the, the snell move in Tampa Bay. I know you saw that, that kind of brings it oh, to yeah. the forefront, but I think you're right. I think, uh, you know, things ebb and flow. And I think as we go through baseball is always going to be baseball. Great players are always going to be great players, but uh, I, I think there's definitely a, a common ground in between data and in between real great ball or great baseball people making baseball decisions. Yeah, you know, I, you know, I, I don't discount the data at all because you know, in managing, and you know, I use it a lot. You know, you prepare with it, you kind of get a better feel of your guys. And uh, but when you when it comes crunch time and you got to make a decision, you know, you got to know what's in the guy's gut too, man. It's just, yeah, I got all these numbers, but you know, you got to have a feel for guys' makeup and how they respond and and who can slow the game down when they need to slow it down. But, um, you know, back to my other point, I, I just think that with these three true outcomes, you know, the strikeout, the walk, and the homer being elevated by about 10% over the past decade and, and all the at-bats that we see at the major league level, it, it's just really slowed down the action. So the combination of, you know, the commissioner and, you know, the, the union, they're all going to have to try to figure out how to proceed and what they're going to do as far as any rule changes that they can make to maybe try to make the game a little bit more action but uh, yeah, I, like I said, there's a lot of good stuff out there. Shoot, I never. I don't, did you ever know what your war was when you played? <laughs> I, I still don't know what war is. <laughs> I know yeah, it's something well, that I, I want to avoid. <laughs> I, put, I put I put a chart up in, in in my office that had definitions of all the new terms, and I tried to read it like every couple of days, just so like when my boss would come in and he'd ask me about something, I'd have some kind of clue of what he was talking about. But uh, yeah, it, it, it's changed a lot. All right, you had a 39-game hitting streak, and I, and I want to ask you this question. When you were going through that streak, and, and I would assume after you get to about 25 or 30, people are starting to pay a little attention to you. So for me, and what's the difference once you got into that streak into the 30s versus when you're at sitting at 2999? Yeah. What was tougher each day going to the park? Yeah, well, you know, it's, it was a different time uh, in the game as far as coverage. There was no social media. So you didn't have quite maybe the overwhelming attention that a player might have today if he gets up into that realm of numbers of, of consecutive games. But, um, you know, thinking back, you know, that I knew someone told me when I got to 20 that the Brewer team record was 24. So, you know, yeah, well, that'd be cool. And then you get past that. And then you don't think about it for another week. And now you're in the 30s and you're still going. And now, now you're starting to realize that, you know, this 
it doesn't happen all the time and you're starting to see some of the all-time lists of hitting streaks and you know you just try to keep your focus it was it was late in late in august or partly in august and we were still trying to win games we were in a pennant race in that year i think it was 87 so you know you just try to really remind yourself your focus is to go out there be you know a teammate try to help the team win but inevitably, because of the media and different things, sometimes it took a, it, it took a lot on a little bit life of its own there, especially near the end. So it was fun, though, man. I mean, you go six weeks in the big league without taking an over. <laughs> that's pretty. That's pretty good. In the modern day, I, I think there's only a few of you. you know, I think Pete Pete had a few more than you, but there's not too many 39 yep. game hit streaks. I mean, everything's got to go perfect because you're going to have that day when you when you square up three balls and get nothing for it. So, yeah, you, went through, you know, it, it, it's yeah. Yeah. Believe, believe me, I mixed in a few flares along the way to keep it going. So you got to, <laughs> you got to. So no doubt about that. And it helps. Right, so, fun too. So I want to talk about 2004. That's the year I got to, to work with you. You came in and uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think it might've been your first major league job away from being a player, uh, but you are a hitting coach in Seattle. And uh, that was, that was a kind of a, Man, that was a crazy year. That was the year you get inducted into the Hall of Fame. Yeah. And you're running around. And, and what goes in for, for people out there listening, being a hitting coach and, and taking pride in it, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of flips. It's a lot of getting to the work. ballpark early. It's a lot of, you know, talking players, talking hitters off the ledge when they're going through a tough time. You talk me off a few times. But then all of a sudden, up, oh, Paulie's got to go. To Cooperstown, which is unbelievable. <laughs> you don't get to you don't get to say where well, our hit coach yeah. had to take a few days off. He's got to go. He's got to go get inducted to the Hall of Fame, which was which was awesome. But tell yeah, the it, tell the fans it, out there well, what that year was like for you. Well, you know, just the, how it came together was I actually had coached for the Twins in two thousand and two thousand one. For I was a bench coach for Tom Kelly for a couple of years. And then uh, I got out of I got to do my research better. And, oh, no, no big deal. And then, uh, you know, Pat Gillick was, was uh, running, the, running the Mariners at the time, and he called me uh, and asked me about, you know, coming up there to be the hitting coach. And I said, well, you know, I, I've never done it. I'd be happy to come interview for it, and let's see where it goes. And I, I got out there, and the more I talked about it, the more I thought about it, the more I thought it would be tremendously challenging. I, I You know, I got – to do the research on the team and the personnel. And I dived into it, man. I just kind of thought I would do my best, best that I could. I mean, obviously we don't have the information to back then that we do today, but you know, unfortunately that, you know, that was a year where, you know, a lot of things were going on that weren't good for that franchise. And um, in terms of, you know, some players, you know, Edgar was, I think it was his last year. And, you know, um, you know, some guys were kind of on the backside, you know, we had some veterans that didn't have very good years and, it was uh, it was challenging. It was the only job I've ever got fired in in baseball until I got fired from managing a couple of years ago. But but I still really enjoyed the experience. I thought Seattle was phenomenal. I, I love spending you know that whole season up there in that city, and uh, I got to work with you, which was fun. I remember sitting down in spring training when we went in the office and we got out we got out your tape, and we watched it together. And uh, you know I, I I get chills thinking about that man. How pumped up you get when you put together a nice little sequence of good swings you put on the baseball, but 
it was a learning experience for me. Bob Melvin was a manager, and we all know how well he's done in that role now for a long time. But, uh, yeah, had had a really good time, met some really good people, and have, have good memories even though the season didn't go the way we, we had hoped it would. So in 2015, you get your first managing gig with Minnesota. Uh, what was the most rewarding and, and what was the most frustrating? I, I guess my, my real question is, what did you learn that you didn't know after, after you put that, that managing hat on? Yeah. Well, you know, the, the actual game management uh, wasn't bad. And, you know, you, you kind of you learn a little bit and maybe you make a couple of mistakes or you panic and, you know, you, the game gets moving a little too fast because, you know, your hitting coach is coming up to you, your pitching coach, and, you know, you're getting a lot of input during the game and you just try to, you know, like you do as a player, you slow it down and you think and, and you try to make the right decision. But I, I think that the part that – surprised me a little bit was just how much comes across a manager's desk every day. You know, obviously you have your, your media before and after and, but just stuff going on with players, calling people in, you know, sending people out, you know, trying to explain to guys the rationale behind decisions that are being made about their careers and their future. Um, That was tough. But, but what I loved about it was, you know, a lot of the guys that I managed when I, you know, I, I didn't start managing until I was, you know, pretty old guy. But I had a lot of those players in the minor leagues for a long time in player development. And to get them, to, you know, to watch them come up there, still be a little bit young in the maturity side and try to help them develop as men as well as players and then see some of the results. I think that's the re- rewarding part of the job. Uh, we only got to the playoffs one time and it was in a wild card role and we uh, we got beat out, out in New York. But you know, overall, I, you know, I still have good relationships with a lot of guys that I managed and, uh, you know, just really glad that I got an opportunity to do that before the years passed me by. I, when, it, when it ended, um, the Twins had brought in new executive um, personnel in uh, Derek Falvey and Thad Levine. And, you know, they, they stayed with me for a bit, but it was obvious they kind of wanted to get their own guy, which I really didn't have a problem with. And then, uh, you know, I got asked to step down after 2018. And to be honest with you, with what's going on with the pandemic, I don't know if I really miss being out there right now because I'm sure it's been tremendously challenging what they had to do last year and what might be on the horizon for 2021. I uh, had a conversation the other day with a guy that you're pretty familiar with and and as goes hand-in-hand hand with Minnesota, Torrey Hunter. Yeah. And he asked, he, he asked me, and, he, and I told him, I said, yeah, Paulie's coming on the show. And he, he goes, oh, Paul Molitor. He goes, I love that man. I said, give me something. And he said, uh, <laughs> you know, I remember Paulie, he always had, he was always teaching, and he was always trying to help you. And he said, you were the best. You taught him, and he said it changed his, the way he approached the game, how to pick pitches, how to, how to, find tendencies yeah. when, when pitchers were picking their pitches. And he goes, tell Paulie to this day, I appreciate it. He made a big impact on my career and you were the first guy. And I know you were a guy like that. You were always looking for, for things out of the ordinary or, sure. or, or just sure. to tell. So talk to the, to the audience a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, you know, I was around a lot of good people, but Tory Hunter, one of my favorite, I mean, if you, if you talk about a guy that will, you know, literally run through a wall for you and just leave it all out on the field day in and day out. You know, he was just great to be around in that capacity. And then you had the fact that he was a hell of a player. It, it was a joy. 
But, you know, I, I had those guys, a lot of them, you know, minor leagues and things. And you're minor leagues. You know, these guys haven't cleaned up their act very well as far as pitching and what they're doing and things that they change from pitch to pitch. And, you know, that, it would always be kind of a running joke how many pitches it would take for me to get <laughs> before, I, before I knew what was coming. And then I would tell, you know, we'd get into the first inning and I'd see, you know, something and I'd, all of a sudden I'd start calling out the pitches and these guys just couldn't, couldn't believe it, you know. So we used to have a session in spring training where I would talk about some of the things that you could look for. Obviously, when you get to the big leagues, it's a little bit tougher because of the video and things that they have that, they get, that by the time they get there, a lot of the guys have cleaned up. But, you know, we, we still found enough to where we, when we got an edge, we took advantage. And sometimes it could be, you know, what they do with their glove or how they take their hands or how close they are to their belt. Sometimes it's facial expressions. I mean, there's just a lot of things. You know, we, we used to joke one time they, 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 didn't, they couldn't figure out how I got a guy's pitches. And I said, he's a breather. And he said, he's a breather. I said, yeah. I said, you watch how he breathes on a fastball and you watch how he breathes on his breaking ball. It's totally different. And they, did, they would just crack up when, I, when I'd find something like that. But it was fun. Tory was a good student. He, he took it. He, he ran with it. And we all know what kind of career he had. All right. Well, you talked about you loved watching Edgar hit. And when he was on the Boone podcast, I asked him the question I'm going to ask you. So you got to take Edgar out of the equation. But I asked Edgar, okay. I said, Edgar, who do you like to hit? And you were mentioned. And he said, Kirby Puckett. He loved watching Kirby Puckett. Hit. He loved watching Paul Molitor hit. He loved watching George Brett. So take Edgar out. If, you, if, yeah. if there's no Edgar, who did Paul Molitor throughout his career enjoy watching hit the most? Well, I, I think when I was playing – you know, George is one of those guys for me, too. I mean, you know, I saw him uh, take a run at 400 that one year. In fact, we're, they were playing in – the Royals were in Milwaukee, and it was a cold September day, and George went five for five. And after his last hit, you know, it flashed up on the board that George Brett is now hitting 407, and we're on September 12th or whatever. And I just marveled at what he could do. Um, you know, he, he just had such command of the strike zone and – all the good hitters, you know, they know how to use the whole field. They know kind of to take what the pitcher's getting for them. They know how to use counts in their favor. Um, and he's right up there. And when he talks about Puck, you know, Puck was a guy who didn't command the strike zone, but it didn't matter because he could hit the bad ball as well as he could hit a pitch down the middle. And just his bat-to-ball skills were, were unbelievable. But, you know, I, I saw some other really good hitters, uh, along the way Cecil Cooper when I first got to Milwaukee was just a phenomenal hitter as far as being able to you know just hit the ball over the field and line drive percentage and all those type of things he was kind of a Rod Carew with power um, Don Mattingly went through a stretch where man you know too bad he ended up with that back injury because he'd be in Cooperstown too but there was a time where he was one of the more, most dominant hitters and unfortunately you know I didn't get to see a lot of the National League guys because you know, we didn't have the interleague until my last two years in the big leagues. But I know there were some pretty darn hit, good hitters over there, too. So, um, yeah, you know, the young guys, the old guys, you know, I saw when Griffey came in and, and how he matured and, and Alex up there in Seattle. I mean, you know, there was, they had some great hitters come through that franchise. But I, I can't leave Edgar out totally. I mean, what I marveled at him <laughs> was that 
his ability to, you know, take the ball the other way and stay inside the ball. And the minute you thought you had him set up and beat to beat him inside, he somehow find a way to clear and, and, and hit a home run to left. It was just amazing to watch that guy and, how, and what he could do and the damage and really a clutch player too, as we, as we all remember from, from that big playoff game when they beat the Yankees to advance. Well, Polly, I appreciate it. One of the classiest guys that I've been around. Uh, one of my favorite coaches to this day. I mean, uh, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate you ha- coming on. And what we do here at the end of the Boom Podcast is we have the voice, Dan Levy, come in with some questions from the fans. Dan, take it away. All right. We have a question from the fan, and the fan's name is Tom in Quebec. And he wants to know, what was it like playing and living in Canada? Well, I, I was a little bit nervous about it at first, but I have to tell you, my three years in Toronto were phenomenal. Um, you know, my first year playing for the Blue Jays, we drew 4 million fans, which means we averaged 50,000 people a day. So it's pretty nice for a player to walk into the ballpark knowing that you're going to be sold out each and every day. And, uh, you know, the way they treated you around town, the way the franchise tried to make the transition to living in Canada um, as seamless as possible. Um, Just really good people, beautiful city, and uh, obviously winning my only World Series kind of makes it a little bit more special. Well, Paul, we want to thank you so much for coming on the Brett Boone Podcast. It was a pleasure having you. Appreciate you guys having me. Booney, glad we got a chance to hook up that one year. I hope to see you down the road, man. I know you're going to break into that TV stuff. I'll be looking for you more this summer. Thanks, Polly. Thanks for coming on. Mailbag. All right, Booner, you know that sound. That means it is time for the Bread Boone Mailbag. You ready to roll? Ready to roll. All right, let's dip on in, shall we? All right, Brett, this one is from Joey, and it says... How many gloves would you go through in a year? Uh, one a year. I one would a year? Have, yeah. What I would do is, and that wasn't the norm. You know, guys are, guys are all different. And I would have one brand new glove every year. And then my, my glove for the following year would be my, uh, my batting practice glove. So I'd take ground balls before the game with that one, and I would break it in over the course of the season. And that would be ready for next year. Then I'd break out a new one for my practice glove. So I always had a backup. Uh, But, yeah, I I would have one glove a year, and I would retire that glove, good, bad, or indifferent, and and move on to the next. Why retire it? Why not just keep on going? I don't know. I was just, like I said, everybody's different. That was just my thing. You know, I felt like, uh, and it didn't matter. You know, some gold glove years, I, I still got rid of the glove. Uh, not a gold glove year. I get rid of the glove. It's just what I did. Gotcha. All right. Let's keep on dipping in, shall we? You got it. All right, Brett. This one comes from Edward in San Diego. Who was the best smack talker you played with? Oh, Jay Buner. Chris Bozio as well. <laughs> Chris Bozio, an old Milwaukee guy, a Seattle yes. guy. Um, but Jay was, uh, and and I don't say it in a bad way. He was he was kind of a he took me under his wing when I was a, when I was a rookie in Seattle when I came up in '92. He kind of kept kept an eye out on me and and kind of helped me through the process. But I'll tell you, I paid for it on the field because it was 
relentless for that 92 season. He kept me in check for sure. But uh, on a serious note, I appreciated everything he did for me. In the same vein, who was the best trash talker you ever went against? Uh, there, there weren't really any. Baseball's different. I mean, you, you've got the guys that are funny, that are witty, uh, that are charismatic. But, but it's not like the other sports. It's not like when a wide receiver uh, lines up against a DB or, or a point guard against a point guard on a basketball court. We usually don't talk like that baseball-wise. It's usually in the heat of the moment. If something's happening in the game, if some one of our guys got drilled, uh, if something they did on the other side of the field we didn't like, that. then it would be – then there would be a lot of talk. But just just from a day-to-day basis in a nine-inning game, uh, there really wasn't any real smack talk going on either way. It, it was always in a controversial moment. Who was the funniest that you ever played against? Played against or with? A little bit of each. Funniest. Oh, shoot. I don't know. There were a lot of characters. There were a lot of characters. I I don't know that I could pick a funniest. All right. Well, then if you can't pick it, we go back into the mailbag. And this one is our last one, and it comes from Jody in Clearwater, Florida. Brett, what was your favorite place to go to during an all-star break that you were not playing in? Well, you know what? Usually, uh, if you don't make the all-star team, uh, you've usually got two or three days. But but at that point, you've got kids. Uh, I usually took that time because during the season, we're so busy. And it's you, you got late nights and you're coming home and you're on the road a lot. And uh, you t- usually take the kids to school. Or once the, once the summer hits, you have a little more time with your family. But I usually tried to always spend the all-star breaks with my family and usually didn't do anything fancy just stay in the city that i was playing in at the time how hard is it to play with uh with a family i can only imagine i would, I would leave my kid to do radio jobs and i felt well, bad what was it like to be like all right i'm gonna be gone for like the entire month of august well it could be tough because because uh like i said you're playing late night so if if the kids are in school you, i force myself to get up at six thirty in the morning and drive the kids to school because that's the last time I was going to get to see them for the day because I would go to the ballpark at around two in the afternoon. They hadn't been picked up from school. They're probably not going to go to the game tonight because those are late nights and they have school the next morning. So the only time I got to see them was, was taken to school at seven in the morning. So uh, it could be tough at times. You didn't get to spend as much time with your kids as you'd like. Now, once the summer hit, um, they were out of school. You got to spend the day with them. And, and they'd get to go to more games, especially as they got a little bit older, because it didn't matter if they were coming home at 11 at night. But, when, you know, when they were little and they were kindergarten and first and second grade, uh, mom didn't want them out till 11 at night, <laughs> 12 at night watching dad. So it'd just be a weekend thing. Gotcha. Well, we want to thank everybody that goes ahead and uh, hits us up via Twitter at the Boone 29 is where you can direct any questions that you have for the podcast. And he's also on Facebook and Instagram. You can find him there as well and shoot him a message. And if you have any questions, send it that way and we will get you on the podcast and we will send it Brett's way. So thank you all those who are sending in questions for the Brett Boone mailbag. That's going to do it for this podcast. We want to thank Paul Molitor for coming on the show. Brett Boone, remember, you can find him at, at the Boone 29 and you can hear this podcast 
and all podcast platforms. So if you got a platform, that's where you'll find us. And this has been the Bread Boom Podcast. My name is Dan Levy. We'll do it again next time. See you guys soon. Later.